Today I want to continue our uh, Lenten sermon series called Famous Last Words about the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. This one is always the fifth word from the Gospel according to St. John. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, and so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. St. John famously begins his rollicking little Jesus biography like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. Now St. John wants to begin his gospel just the way the Bible itself began, right? He's consciously alluding to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a shapeless void, and the Spirit of God brooded across the face of the waters. In the beginning, says John, God spoke, and at that word, a spinning blue planet began to fly around a burning star. And it's blue because it's 70% water. And in a trajectory which carries it 595 million miles in a year, the earth stays roughly 93 million miles from the star's blazing surface, just distant enough so that the star's fires won't vaporize every last drop of moisture, as it happens with this planet's sister planets, and just near enough so that the star's heat coaxes billions of gallons of water from the ocean's surfaces, carries it thousands of miles, and drops it on dry land. And this is the phenomenon, of course, which provides conditions favorable for the nurture of self-replicating organisms. In fact, a whole prodigious prodigal panoply of protozoa, plankton, peonies, ponderosa pines, platypi, porpoises, and presbyterians. So far as we know, it's the only place in a universe of 100 billion galaxies where this takes place. We've looked in every far corner of the galaxy, and we can't find complex life anywhere. The stargazers are going to have to find water before they find life elsewhere in the universe. Now, 98% of the Earth's water is in the oceans, and therefore, of course, undrinkable. And of that remaining 2%, two-thirds of that is locked up in polar ice caps, so that there's a mere 1% of the water on the earth for the billions and billions of living things that are living here on this planet. One-tenth of 1% 1 of the world's water is available for human use. And so that the water you made coffee with this morning is 800 million years old, and it's all we'll ever have. And for that reason, it is the most precious liquid on earth. It's more expensive than oil. And so Cape Town is one of the most beautiful and richest cities in Africa. But if it runs out of water on what they are ominously referring to as day zero, it will be uninhabitable. And so I was so happy upon my first visit to Kenilworth Union Church when I discovered that you can see Lake Michigan from the churchyard. Well, almost. You might have to walk a few yards down the block, but you can see Lake Michigan. 
And we who live in Illinois and Michigan and Minnesota take this all for granted. And so I have to visit my son in California to discover how parched and brown and dusty the earth can really get. 18%, 18% of the world's fresh surface water is in the Great Lakes. We are so fortunate to be here. Well, back to the Bible story. In the beginning, when everything was just right, God spoke again. And God said, I think I'll make me a man and a woman. And God stooped down and took a handful of crumbled stardust. And he molded it into the shape of a man and then a woman. And he called the first man Adam or Adama, which means dirt or ground or earth. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we, human beings, are 70% water, just like the earth from which we're made. Several thousand or several billion years later, God spoke again. And this time God said, I think I'll go down there and see how my children are doing. And so God became flesh, 70% water, and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, says John, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That was in the beginning. In the ending, St. John says, the Word cried out and said, I'm thirsty. And so the message of the Gospel according to St. John is that the creator of this blue marble became flesh, 70% water, and cried out in the end for a cup of cold water or a sponge full of bitter wine, this one who had earlier turned water into wine. It's a unique story. Some people would say it's a preposterous story. It's a beautiful story. It's a horrible story. The Roman historian Cicero said that crucifixion was the worst extreme of torture inflicted upon slaves. Religion, or Christianity at any rate, is not for the faint of heart. Religion, our religion anyway, is not for sissies. Karl Marx tried to teach us that religion is the opium of the masses. Yes, Wikipedia tells me that the principal effect of opium is to relieve or suppress pain, to deaden anxiety, to relax the body and the mind, and to induce euphoria. Have you ever had morphine? They gave me morphine once. Isn't it wonderful? That's why we have this opioid epidemic in America. It is irresistible. You just don't care what they do to you. And that's what Marx thought of religion. He thought it would deaden the pain of the people and induce a state of euphoria and get us not to notice our wretched condition. But if you were building a religion from scratch and your aim was to dull human sensibilities as if with a narcotic, is that the religion you would build? Is that what you'd come up with? Is that an opiate? The trouble with Marx is that he never bothered to read the New Testament. Sigmund Freud said that God was the product of infantile illusions, immature dreams. He said that religion was a pack of delusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and mo most urgent wishes of humankind. And he kept trying to get the human race to grow up to stop being babies. We can't remain children forever, he said. We must go out in the end into hostile life. We may call this, he said, an education to reality. How much reality can you take? 
few years ago, one of my colleagues on the church staff had three beautiful daughters, and she came into the staff meeting one Thursday morning in a panic, telling us that she and her husband had thought that the preceding Friday night it would be a good idea to set their children down and to watch, as a family, this old television show called Jesus of Nazareth. And she was telling the rest of the church staff how troubling it was to watch the crucifixion scene. She said, I ordinarily don't let my children watch this stuff on TV. They wanted to see Bruce Willis and Die Hard. I wouldn't let them. Too violent. This was worse. When my six-year-old started watching them put Jesus on the cross, she covered her eyes and she said, It isn't real, is it, Mommy? I'm thirsty, he said. Years ago in my Philadelphia church, we had so many great friends who were about our age, raising their children uh, up with us together, and we'd take turns hosting dinner parties in our homes every Friday night. And around the table, we all got to talking about church every single time, of course, because church is just as entertaining and colorful and dramatic as any dysfunctional family, right? And this one Friday evening, we all got to talking about why church was so important to us. And to a person around this table, we all agreed that one of the reasons church was so important to us is because it's such a serene and placid place, this retreat from the busyness of the world, right? This place where we can get away from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And I guess we were right about that, I I guess. It is a serene and placid place. But there was a young woman there. She's one of my best friends. She just loved her life. She adored her husband. Her husband adored her. She had these three wonderful children who were funny and bright and kind. The oldest was off to Northwestern on an academic scholarship, and the middle one was playing first singles on the varsity tennis team at the high school. And the youngest was this lovable little imp who created just enough trouble to be charming. Do you watch Stranger Things? He reminded me of Dustin on Stranger Things. Her father was a 70-year-old orthopedic surgeon, retired to Naples with his neurologist wife. She was in her 40s. She still had all four grandparents in their 90s. She'd never experienced an intimate grief in her immediate family. She had this perfect life, except she was a deacon in in the church we all attended together. And when she heard us talking about church as a retreat from the real real world, she said, holy smokes, if peace is what I wanted, church is the last place on earth I'd go to. If I stayed away from church, I could just ignore all this stuff outside my own beautiful home. But then I go to church and what do I hear? The minister keeps preaching about the Rohingya and the people in Syria and the homeless people in Center City and he keeps trying to get me to give my money to the church instead of buying a new BMW. And then we get to prayer time and we have to pray for all the people who are dying of cancer and Lord knows what all. And you have to visit them and bring flowers and food. And then a 22-year-old kid ends his own life with a shotgun and the minister wants you to sit down with his parents to say something but there's nothing to say and they sob and they sob and they sob and there's a widow in the church who lives alone and at a hip replacement so I go over to her house three times a day to walk her dog for 10 days straight until she can do it herself and the other day I went into the city at 10 o'clock in the morning and I was there at 6 p.m. because somebody didn't show up cooking food for 300 homeless people. And I get home, my husband's out of town, my kids hadn't eaten yet. 
And then on Sundays, you sit in the pew with a bunch of unpleasant people you'll never talk to in a million years unless you were at church. And so she taught us a lesson that evening. Christianity is not an escape from reality, but a reluctant journey into its dark and jarring center. It's a call to follow the crucified God who in the beginning launched a shimmering blue sphere into orbit around a flaming furnace and lacquered its surface with blue six miles deep in some places. The Nile, the Amazon, Lake Superior, the Ganges. And who in the end from the cross cried out for a cup of water. John Magnuson says that for him, the Great Lakes are sacred. He writes so beautifully about the Great Lakes. They're almost like a sacrament for him, he says. Today, John is a Lutheran minister at Northern Michigan University in Marquette on the south shore of Lake Superior. But years ago, John was a chaplain at Children's Hospital of Chicago, long before they called it Lurie, when it was still in Lincoln Park, about 10 blocks from Lake Michigan. And he says that one Lent in March, 40 years ago, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, his pager went off, and it was a nurse calling him to the ICU where parents wanted their baby baptized. The baby was six weeks old and had been there for six weeks ever since she was born with congenital disabilities so severe that they thought that she probably had hours to live. The parents had said that because of bad weather, and probably also because of their own sense of spiraling hopelessness, they would not come in for this sacrament. And so John says to the nurse, I'll, it's late in the day, I'll come back after dinner. And the nurse says she won't make it that long. And she hands him a plastic pill bottle filled with water from Lake Michigan. And he pours some drops down this baby's forehead and says in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he says, ever since that time, the lakes have been a sacrament for him. It's water is a matter of life and death. It brings life. It can kill. I bet the lakes are a sacrament for many of you as well. It's the sine qua non of hum human life, of any kind of life. After oxygen, the most essential staple in the universe in the beginning, the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters and turned it into a blue marble. And at the end of his life, Jesus, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, if the Nicene Creed is to be believed, cried out, I'm thirsty. So if you want an education to reality, how much reality can you take? The trouble with Marx is that he never read the New Testament. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.